Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 173 of All Can Hear Podcast. I'll be your host today, Patrick. And joining me today is my special co-host, Jonathan. And we're in the middle of our little recording apart special this month. Jonathan and I are back in the uh, driver's seat for this episode. And we'll be talking about something that we've been really antsy to get to started on ever since early in the year. And today we'll be talking about the films of John Waters. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Or at least the first half of his career. So we'll be talking about four of his uh, films today. If you don't know, John Waters has a very uh, interesting set of films <laughs> yeah. with a lot of strong content. Yeah, uh, John Waddles, Waters is not for everybody, and I will say, content warning for everything. <laughs> yeah, like I get. I guess if you want to be specific, content warning for uh, violence, sex, nudity. Animal abuse, incest, sexual assault. Yeah. But basically... Anything along the lines of anything that's considered taboo, just just keep that in mind before going into this episode, because we are going to discuss these films. Not necessarily in depth, but... Like we did early in the year with Takashi Miike, uh, another controversial and content-dubious director. There will be some material covered in the films and in discussion that may be a little upsetting for everyone, may not be everyone's palate and taste. And that's okay. That doesn't mean these films are, are bad or wrong. It's just, that's just a content within. And that, that has to sort of be a, addressed up front. Yeah, so like if you if any of that stuff is sensitive to you and you just want to skip out on this, no hard feelings. We, like we totally get it. So, but uh, we did want to give get a little to uh, John Waters himself personally. He was born April twenty second, nineteen forty six. He grew up in Lutherville, Maryland, which is um, twenty minutes outside of Baltimore. And Baltimore it plays like a permanent role in his film because just about all of them take place in Baltimore. It's just a city that he's always drew inspiration from and he always really loved, and that really does come across in his films because they're all they're all self there and it just like has a, a quintessential quality about it. Yeah, just a little, like I said, like a little bit of the overview. Uh, as a young man, he had, he had a rather normal childhood considering the content that he puts out, but he said his very you know ordinary Roman Catholic lifestyle as a child was very important important to him because it was learning from a very rigid rule-based uh, society that he learned which rules to break mm-hmm. because he's he's known as the king of bad taste in his films. The Pope of Trash. So, so, the, so there's a distinction for him. There's good bad taste is what he, what he tries to put across in his film. There's bad, bad taste. It just just some, like some interesting stories. His his parents were like really bewildered by his uh, eccentricity as a child, but were, were nonetheless supportive of their peculiar child they yeah. they gave him a lot of money for his earliest films yeah like i, I remember looking into him a while back and uh, his dad gave him like ten thousand dollars for either pink flamingos or multiple maniacs and i was like well, fuck i wish my parents had that kind of money to just just, drop. To, just to bankroll my my obscene art projects yeah and then on top of that that's like 1960s 1970s money too so you have to adjust that for inflation i will say that um Later on, after he had found his acclaim, he was able to reimburse his father with interest for yeah. uh, for for really supporting and sticking with him despite all uh, the weird shit. Because I'm sure they they probably just saw their kid doing something they didn't know what the hell was happening. He got his start making films. He used a camera he was gifted to from his grandmother, and he just sort of went around filming what he could, filming what he can. And like exploring the the underbelly of, of Baltimore, he met like all these people in the, from the counterculture, and in the city, 
and through that he started film he started to show his films there like a, a lot of his film earliest films were played in like churches at night because because he, <laughs> he was able to convince being a good Roman Catholic boy to to show his films at at church with no supervision so you just have like all these all these weird depraved obs, obscene films playing in the church and he just like gained fame and gained notoriety and like really ingratiated himself into the counterculture of Baltimore and through that he found a lot of new friends and friends that would be frequently cast in his films which are known as the dreamlanders like all all the people he come to know and all the recurring faces you see in a lot of John Waters films especially the earlier ones yeah like uh, Mink Stoll, Edith Massey and of course Divine which i mean he's ra- rose all those up to basically stardom yeah and it's really interesting cuz he cuz uh, he he met divine in a um in a beaten it bar that was formerly a french restaurant divine you know it's it's sort of hard to talk about john waters without mentioning divine cuz they're inexorably linked with each other he was john waters his muse john waters called him the most beautiful woman in the world almost <laughs> it's actually pretty funny cuz divine or his birth name glenn milstead they grew actually grew up like six houses across from each other they went to the same school and they had like a very similar early life and that sort of eventually through the crowds they ran through they eventually became friends and just had this very long and prolific personal relationship and as well as a business relationship Mm -hmm. just sort of the hallmarks of john waters films like he was a big fan of like b films and exploitation films so he would like go he would sneak out and see these movies and this content he wasn't allowed to see and his household, so that really inspired him. So you have like a lot of of his films early on, like emulating the sort of very rough style of those movies. Yeah, it, and it, Camp very much defines his output. And and it, <coughs> excuse me. And if you stuck around with us, it's another sort of barrier to entry to John Waters films is they're not the most technically good. And, and once you see any any of his films, you'll you'll realize there's a lot. He has a very particular way of writing dialogue that is unconventional and really uh, I don't want to say artificial, but just ca- really campy. So if it doesn't come off as a, a natural cadence that ordinary people would say, yeah, and, and I mean, and that gives rise to the uh, infamous uh, John Waters monologue where they. People just go off ranting various obscenities at other characters. But, and and like I said, if you're not like a huge fan of just like camp and intentional, bad, cheesy stuff, the, the Waters is not going to be for you. Yeah, I feel like there, there, there are just so many layers that people have to get through to appreciate John Waters. And just like from the content, from the stylistic choices of it, like it, there is a lot that may keep people at bay. But if you have like a certain frame of mind, a certain level of appreciation for weird off the wall cinema, you'll find a lot to enjoy here. Oh, yeah, definitely. You have to be a very particular person to enjoy John Waters. And I guess we are very particular people to do. Yeah. <laughs> but if you enjoy it, it makes it a really special experience. So go ahead and go into our first movie, 1972, possibly his most famous and infamous movie. And that's Pink Flamingos. Yeah. This is the movie he's, I don't want to say best known for, because he also did Hairspray, which was a actually pretty big success. 
and he also did some other like actually mainstream movies in the nineties. Like, you no, know, like Cry Baby was a big one in the eighties after Hairspray as like a mainstream film. Yeah, or like serial mom movies like that. But Pink Flamingos is probably the movie that is most connected to him, him and Divine in particular. With the the iconic poster of Divine in the dress with the gun and everything. And and as John Waters himself said, the human forehead was not able to contain Divine's makeup. And one of my favorite quotes about the movie from John Waters is that he considered the film, quote, a terrorist act on the tyranny of good taste. (laughs) Yes. And uh, this is the first film in what's known as the Trash Trilogy by John Waters, which includes... Female Trouble, which we also discussed about today, and Desperate Living. Pink Flamingos is about a criminal mastermind, we'll say, named Divine, or under her assumed name, Babs Johnson, who lives in a trailer with her mother, son, and traveling companion while hiding from the law. But she's soon become enraged with the fact there's there's some new faces on the criminal market named Raymond and Connie Marble, and they're trying to steal her crown that is of the filthiest person alive. Yeah, and they they think they can do it, and it's just gag after gag of these people doing just depraved, awful shit. And like with a lot of times, very literal, actual gagging from the viewer. (laughs) Yes. Because this movie is... Very hard to stomach because it's just that nauseating. But damn, we had a good time watching it, even though it was... Of all the films, this is probably the hardest one you'll probably have to come across. Yeah, we had to really find it. I don't think it has a Blu-ray release. And I think the DVD has been out of print for years, which for as iconic of a movie as this is, or in as cult of a movie as this is, I don't understand why that's the it, case. It, it does seem like an odd choice that this isn't as available as his other films yeah i mean and granted like a lot of his lesser known films were picked up by criterion come on where's pink flamingo we need to see all that graphic detail and chris 4k i need to see that singing asshole in 1080p god damn it singing asshole what does that mean well we'll that's just one of the many things like it's kind of hard to take word to begin with this because it's such a bizarre film like because you see divine sort of have like this it's like unusual home life in this trailer with her family and friends but like it quickly veers off into just the surreal very quickly yeah it's I, like like you said i don't know where to really start because it's not a traditional plot in in the conventional sense where you know it has a i mean it has a beginning middle and end and it's fairly linear but it's pretty episodic uh just with that thin plot line of who's going to be the filthiest person alive could you have divine living in her trailer with her um devout son or just uh, named crackers and, and and that's the thing about john waters characters he just gives his characters, names like Crackers... Uh, Cotton is the name of her friend that lives with her. Cotton, and just like, it's it's this weird, uncanny that's element that's almost unsettling in of itself. Because her, her son is, is obsessed with chickens, like, and Cotton is a voyeurist, so she, she gets off to watching people do it. Her mother is just inexplicably an adult baby. Yeah, played by the wonderful Edith Massey. And... She she just loves her some eggs. She just loves eggs, and she uh, she's always constantly worried about the egg man, which I think that might be a good place to start because that that is just one of the weird 
more like surreal, weird things about this movie. And in the universe of Pink Flamingos, there is, instead of a milkman, an eggman that comes around selling eggs. Like, I mean... <laughs> Dropping off, like, your carton of eggs. He dresses like a milkman, and she's just... Because the mother, Edie, is just obsessed with eggs and then, like, is a, becomes obsessed with the eggman. Yeah, and they, they, they form this beautiful relationship together. But when the Eggman first shows up to their uh, trailer out in the middle of nowhere, and he's like, Eggman, Eggman, and, and you you can hear just like the terror in her voice that the Eggman might miss miss her. <laughs> she's like, Eggman, I'm here, Eggman. And like she's she's literally sitting in, in a crib the whole for the whole movie. It, it seems like there's nothing abnormal about it to the family. Just like now, mother, Eggman be here in time. She's just like, but what about the Eggman? It's deranged. And then <laughs> and, and there, there's that one part where Cotton is uh, trying to explain to her the story of Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> How can a person be an egg, Cotton? How can a person be an egg? <laughs> And, and, and oh god, that's the, the thing about this movie in particular. It's probably the most quotable of his movies. Just a weird, insane bullshit. Because um, was, was, we'll get to another famous quote from in just a moment. Because after that, we're introduced to the vines rival and rivals and filth, and that's Raymond and Connie Marble, who run an illegal baby service, which they hold women captive. And have them forcibly bred with their manservant, and then give the then sell the resulting children to lesbians that live in Baltimore. And, and uh, I forget uh, uh, what what's the the guy's name, the Mister Marble, Raymond, Raymond Marble. He he has like this weird blue hair, and they're ostentatiously dressed. And he he has this thing where like he just flashes people like fl- of his just fucking dong. Yeah, because 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 there's a bit with just to show how depraved they are. Uh, it's, it's a cut to Raymond walking around Baltimore, flashing women. But but another an extra detail, he has a kielbasa tied to his cock. But, but what, what's so funny is that even the narrator is like appalled by his action. But also he finds it appalling that he just left his wife in the car while he's riding around, <laughs> just exposing flashing. himself. Uh, yeah, it was just. Oh God! And, and and it starts the trend of what John Waters movies of just complete unflattering nudity. Like, it is not titillating at all. Like literally, there there is sex in the film, and it's all just completely nauseating. Oh, yeah, especially when uh, Divine gives Crackers the incest blowjob, and it, it's it's so sad. She she says it's the most divine gift a mother can give her son, and she just. <laughs> Literally sucks his dick. Unedited, like, completely straight on, she's sucking this guy's dick in the movie. It's just like, what the literal fuck? And then the marbles, they have also weird, gross, bony sex in their bedroom. Yes, and it's... <laughs> I just don't... It's like, what can you say about this movie that hasn't really already been said? Other than just... I guess we can just go through, like, bit by bit. Because one of the quotes that we I wanted to talk about is when... A lesbian couple is coming to try to acquire a baby from the marbles leads to, I guess there's just two kinds of people, Miss Sansone. 
my kind of people, and assholes. And it's rather obvious which category you fall into. Have a nice day. <laughs> yes. And, and and even though that's coming from the Marvels, that, that's like the ethos of every John Waters movie where there is one group that's trying to control another group, but the other group is just too fucking weird to ha- for anyone to handle. So just They are just too bizarre to be subjected by larger society. And eventually they, they come on to um, Divine's radar and they're very appalled at the fact that anyone else could be possibly more disgusting and more depraved than they are. So they fire the uh, the first salvo in this war. which leads to another great quote. Divine gets a package at their motor home mm-hmm. and, and she opens it with, a, with, a, with an appalling uh, shriek. It's like, someone has sent me a bowel movement. <laughs> There's one that uh, a literal actual turd was smelled to her. It's a turd, mama! It's a turd! (laughs) God. And then when the marbles go up to do more more reconnaissance, there's this big wild party at the the Johnson household, which leads to all these weird, monstrous people just dancing around. It's just... Oh, my God. Which which leads to the singing asshole bit, which is... There's a guy you don't see his face. He just has his butt cheek spread all the way open, and he's like, I would say, dilating his asshole to the beat of the birds to word. <laughs> this is the the territory of movie that we're dealing with. We talked about the guy with a kielbasa attached to his dong. Oh, there's another part of that scene where he um he flashes this one lady, and then she flashes him back, and she has a fucking dick too. Because she, yeah, she's a transgender woman, and he's like, "Whoa, I'm throwing it right back at you." And, and what was and what was uh funny was that that was like a week before her bottom surgery. So like there, it was, there's this weird period of time that was just caught on camera. Yeah. It, it just, just shows like how integrated John Waters was into like this community that didn't really have like a line of sight in the film, even though he pit like obviously the most like weird and grotesque people within this like ostracized part of, of like Baltimore society. Yeah. And, and he, and, and the way he shoots Baltimore in all of his films is not flattering at all. It's it's always the the more downtrodden parts of town, and it's like gross, and you feel like you'll get hepatitis if you touch anything. But that that's the part of Baltimore he he loves, or he loves Baltimore warts and all. Yeah, exactly. And like and the the feud between them just like crescendos when the marbles set fire to their mobile home. Yeah, and, and, and like. Miss Marble does this weird like fucking chant before she throws the the torch on the the uh, the fucking camper that they live in, and she nearly set herself on fire right before she <laughs> threw it into the camper. Yeah, you can see because she's like wearing this like fur coat, and you can see her like trying to like hide the the coat before tossing the torch. And 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 what's funny too is like their address is just trailer or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. That's all there is. So like they they legitimately like live off the grid, live on the outskirts of society. And I guess it just calm, uh, we can just sort of get to the, I guess the climax of the movie. It's it's hard to say where Divine and her crew find the Marbles house when they're not there. They go in and they start licking the house with. The, they just start licking the furniture, everything, and then when the Marbles get home. The furniture rejects them because apparently they're filthy. Divine and her 
crew's filthiness has some sort of like supernatural power. It's it's like a horse. Like we we, we experience the true filthiness, and you are no longer worthy. So they just like, rejects them somehow. Yeah, and, th- and that's the point where it has the weird mother son blowjob. That's just and to further deprave the house to like it, to make it that much more. Ugly and unlivable. As monstrous as Divine is, even she is repulsed by the fact that they're running like this weird baby dungeon. Yeah, and then they they kill they no no they castrate the uh, the uh, butler who they use the marbles used to impregnate the women, <laughs> which leads to another like just quotable line where uh, the marbles get home and she's like, "They castrated him. His penis is gone." <laughs> And then Divine and, and company, they um, they blindside their marbles. They take them hostage and they drag them all the way back to the remnants of their land with with a film crew right behind them for what is essentially a kangaroo court on film. Yeah, and, and that's another trope of John Waters' movies where they just end with an inexplicable trial. <laughs> because um, another great quote is that, You've been accused of assholeism. <laughs> And then they they shoot they shoot them they uh, well the, the way they tie into a tree and tar and feather them <laughs> oh yeah and then uh, divine shoots both of them then the cops show up and then they cannibalize the cops but this scene leads to one of my favorite quotes in any movie of all time and that is when divine uh in, in front w- of the camera crew t- taking her interviews. Yeah, where she's just like, uh, they're like, Miss Divine, what are your politics? Kill everyone now. Condone first degree murder. Advocate cannibalism. Eat shit. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. And she just has like this victory parade through town, which leads to probably the most infamous scene in the film. And, and that that's saying something when there is a a movie that has a, a, a rape scene with a chicken. Where the chicken actually died. Where they actually killed the chicken. Which, like, as as disgusting as that scene is, the way Cracker says, hold these goddamn chickens, is fucking hilarious. Because that, that's one of the big things about John Waters, is that there's a lot of content that's, like, obviously deliberately uncomfortable, but it's something about the scene is delivered in such a way that you're like, you can't help but laugh, either at the absurdity of it, or just like a line someone says in the middle of this awful thing. Exactly, and I don't. know. You can tell it. Like, there's no like malice behind any of it. A lot of the time, it, but like it's just I, I don't know. And maybe we're just making excuses because we like these movies. But it's it's very much an assault on the senses and and people's sort of like preconceived notions of what's fair and right to put in a film. Yeah, and just in any sort of content and. That's very much a big debate about his films. It's like he's because he's making a statement of like art needs to push the boundaries of society, and and by pushing those boundaries, people can get offended. Mm-hmm. People can be made uncomfortable. How do you push these you know, like social mores and norms and like what is considered objectionable in film? Yeah, and, and a lot of people sort of, I don't know. I feel like John Waters probably gets uh, used as as with like Mel Brooks as an excuse of like, well, you can't make that type of film today, which you, you certainly cannot. Which like, th- yeah, there is definitely some truth into that, but at the same time, I think part of the reason these movies do stand the test of time and aren't as 
I guess, as reviled as, say, something, you know, earlier in film history it is because it is very tongue-in-cheek. And it's sort of hard to criticize something when that's, like, the intent of it. Like, you still don't have to like it. Yeah. But that's just... That, that's sort of the whole point of it. It's, it's by design to be, like, provocative and upsetting. But, like, of course, it's a different way of it, someone saying, like, truly something defamatory and obscene. Yeah. And and, and also, this movie was very much a, uh, a reaction to uh, the legalization of porn and porno chic, which is where they, like, the golden age of porn in the 70s, where they actually made movies that just had porn in it. So, you know, and Deep Throat was like a mainstream hit. Talk about a movie with unflattering nudity. Yeah. Everybody in that movie is butt-ass ugly. But it sold like hotcakes and the 70s whenever that movie came out so it's like you know and john waters is like well how do you push this even further when you know porn is now accepted he's like well hold my beer because we're about to watch an unedited shot of a of a person eating fresh dog shit and and literal shit it's not fake like you see the the shit come out of the dog's ass and then divine pick it up and put it into her mouth and and you can see her like she's trying her best to keep it down but man like she you see her like visibly like wretch yeah she she almost like throws it up and what's funny about that scene is that they fed that poodle uh, a diet of steak for three days prior. Oh, man. And they followed the dog around for three hours waiting for it to shit for the scene. And then, like, Divine had, like, all these, like, breath mitts and, like, mouthwash just to get all the, the, the shit out. And then once it was over the next day, so I feel like, okay, I, I'm a little concerned now. So he called the hospital, asked what he should do, and he didn't cop to eating Dookie. So he's just like, oh, he, feigned, he feigned being a woman. It's like, oh, yes, my son ate shit, and I didn't know what to do. So I hold your son, um, 24. And just like, oh, well, just, you know, tell him to wash his mouth and uh, keep an eye out for it because the worst you'll get are these little white worms. And he sort of just <laughs> bluffed through that phone call and just, like, took that, like, over the phone remedy to heart that's for the next few days. Jesus Christ. And just like some of the other interesting like behind the scenes stuff about the film because like just look going through the research for this film. This it's kinda like crazy the journey that the film went on and just like what people experienced. Cause like the first trailer for the film had no actual footage from the movie. It was just people yeah. reacting to it. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, how can you put any scene in this movie into a trailer and make that trailer coherent? I mean, you can't. Or even, like, acceptable to air on regular TV or normal movie theaters. Yeah, and this is back in the 70s when, like, FCC restrictions were much more stringent. And speaking of the movie theater, this... Uh, Pink Flamingos was shown in, like, a very limited release in very certain theaters. It was, like, literally one of the first midnight movies yeah, I think El Topo was a year before. Yes, but, El Topo by Alejandro Jodorowsky. That was considered like by many to be the first midnight movie, which is another just very provocative, upsetting, off-the-wall, psychedelic Western. I've not seen that one. I have seen The Holy Mountain. Holy Mountain's one of my favorite movies. And I know that movie's just butt-fuck crazy, and John's trying to get the house to watch it for quite a while now. Yes, I don't know how well it will go over, but it'll be an experience nonetheless. Exactly. 
Yeah, and, and the thing is, is this movie wasn't necessarily immediate success. And, and it wasn't until it got, I forget the name of the theater, but there's a specific theater in New York that showed all those movies, and that's how they gained the notoriety that they did. Like, it was El Topo, Pink Flamingos, Rocky Horror, Eraserhead. Oh, what? There, there was another movie that brought, it basically brought reggae to the, to the States, but I, I can't remember the name of it. But there, there's an excellent documentary and an excellent book about the midnight movie movie movement from the 1970s. So check that out. About the filming, they said um, the cast and crew practically lived in squalor while making the film. They said they lived in like a a trailer that was like, like it was like a hippie commune with no running water. Oh God! They said it, it was just like, it was like living on a farm. Essentially, because I can't imagine you making as a filthy of a film as Pink Flamingos is, and you just go down to the to the Hilton after a day of filming. No, yeah, and as as grungy and dirty as everyone looks, there, there's no way you can cake that much filth on every single day. And just speaking to filth, it's like there was a, a moment in filming where Divine was. Um, Stopped by cops for under suspicion of shoplifting, and she, and he was like, "Oh no, I'm preparing for a role as a shoplifter," and he managed to talk his way out of being arrested. Oh wow, yeah, because the, there there is a scene in this movie where Divine shoplifts a sake and shoves it up her dress. So she's just walking with this like this flap of meat like tucked between her legs. To just like other wild things like um the movie was made for ten thousand dollars. And a lot of the props were made were getting either from dumpster diving in the city or just outright theft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and a lot of the women's wardrobe in the film, they're taken from like a bin outside the local Salvation Army. Yeah. It, 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 that all makes sense. And they must have filmed it like really late in the winter. Because there are multiple points in the movies, especially during outside scenes, where you can visibly see everyone's breath. Yeah. And not everyone's dressed for the weather. Appropriately. Uh, in particular, Edith Massey and her uh, and her little playpen. Like, <laughs> I, I, like, if you look carefully, I mean, you can see her teeth chattering yeah, at I one mean, point. They, they really had a hard time filming that that movie in a lot of different ways. And, and you say it was filmed for $10,000 and normally you'd be like, Oh wow. You can't, t-. you you can tell it was made for $10,000. If it seems like it was less, I feel like I got, <laughs> I, 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 I wonder if there's like an itemized bill of like what they spent their money on, because a part of it is, it is obviously deliberately low budget. Part of it is like, because it, they had no money to film. Yeah, and then part of it was, it, it was just a bunch of assholes who didn't really know what they were doing, but they were just like, fuck it, trial by fire. And you can really, and as you as we go through these these sets of movies, you, you see John Waters get more better and better as a director. Because, like, the camera work in Pink Flamingos is really... Shaky. Shaky, it's really... Not not even competent, I would say. I mean, it's just it very much holds still. There's not a lot of dynamic camera movement. When there's a monologue that's about to happen, you see the camera zoom in on the character, and when you 
when it's a their monologue's about to end, it zooms back out. It's very, uh, it very much feels in a lot of ways like a, a weird, surreal home movie. I, I would say that, yeah. And I, one thing I thought was interesting doing the research is apparently John Waters was inspired to do Pink Flamingos by driving around Baltimore looking at local trailer parks and just wondering what it was like to live there and what the people did that did there. What were their stories? <laughs> and I wonder if any one of them were even remotely close to what debauchery happened in this film. Uh, who knows? Wrapping up with this, like um, Roger Ebert had a very uh, interesting review of it. He said, quote, I'm not giving a star rating to Pink Flamingos because stars simply do not apply. It can be considered not as a film, but as a fat, perhaps as an object. <laughs> God, that... There are some reviews that Roger Ebert did, like even if I don't agree, where he just goes fucking sicko mode, and it it's it's great. Uh, some other fun facts: apparently, Danny Mills, the actor who played Crackers, divine son in the movie, he was so ashamed of the film that he never he, he never worked in acting again, and he he uh, he asked he'd never be really mentioned to it. And apparently, he only ever uh, appeared in like documentaries about John Waters afterwards or Divine. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, and another form of actor, Anonymity, the uh, actor who played the singing asshole, uh, he asked John Waters to never reveal his identity. And John Waters kept that secret. Waters would say that the actor would, did at least enjoy his time in the movie and would mm-hmm. point out his part when having like private view and with close friends. But uh, unfortunately, he passed, the actor passed away earlier this year. And his wife did give permission to finally um, share his identity. So, R.I.P. David E. Gluck. R.I.P. Singing Asshole Man. And uh, lastly, there actually was a sequel planned for Pink Flamingos called Flamingos Forever, which would have been uh, set 15 years after the original. It would have starred Divine returning with her son, Crackers and Cotton, and her mother, Edie, as they came back to Baltimore, but they also come with her new grandson, David, a uh, eight-year-old cross-dresser. Hell yeah. And the film would revolve around a feud between um, Connie Marble's sister and her husband as they try to eke out revenge against Divine. And the movie would ultimately end in Divine's death with the movie climaxing with Divine's uh, ascension to heaven riding a giant turd. I wish this movie was made. It sounds amazing. Uh, But the reason why the movie is never made is because Divine at that point in his career, was wanting to move on to more serious male roles mm-hmm. and just felt the movie had like sort of run its course as like a, as a shock piece. And yeah. after the death of Divine and Edith Massey, the, the, the film was ultimately canceled, but you can find the original script and John Waters' book, The Trash Trio. Hell yeah. And speaking of The Trash Trio, we'll move on to the second film in the Trash Trilogy, and that's 1974's Female Trouble. That's, it's a movie. I'll say it has a bop of an intro. Yeah, the 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 song "Female Trouble," fucking great. It's a song by Divine himself, herself. Uh, I think he he had preferred he him, uh, like as as the as him himself. You know, at, when he's divine, it's she her. But yeah, he considered himself male. And "Female Trouble" is about a rowdy Baltimore teenager named Don Davenport who descends to a life of increasing crime and debauchery after her parents don't buy her her cha-cha heels for Christmas. And God, just the fucking levels of absurdity this movie reaches. To me, this is like a more refined Plink Flamingos in a lot of ways where it it definitely feels a little more coherent. Uh, It's not as much shock for the sake of shock. Mm Mm-hmm. 
you know, there's definitely shocking moments, but it, it's more interested in tearing, telling a narrative than just like, look at this weird shit that yeah. we actually did. Because um, Don, she, um, she she's, a, she's a troublemaker in school. She's a liar. She she gets written up in class for eating this gigantic sandwich and then like clearly lying about it. But can we talk about that fucking narc? For like, like the chick that was sitting in front of her is like, um, teacher, she's eating the sandwich and impeding my learning ability. And like, you fucking stool pigeon. It's like, fuck you, snitches get stitches. And so like, Dawn just like, I just want to be, live my own life. I want to be a bad girl. Nobody can tell me what. But my stupid parents are just keeping me down. And, and then once we finally meet her parents, they're just... They just want the best for her. They're like they're really kind and supportive of their daughter. She's just like, You're bastards, leave me alone, mom. She, she's just a fucking bitch. It's like, why? And and that leads to this the scene in uh, at Christmas where, you know, all up to this point she's like, If I don't get my fucking cha cha heels, there'll be hell to pay. And so she doesn't get her cha cha heels and it escalates into a fight where the Christmas tree ends up falling on the mom, trapping her, and then Don Davenport runs away. And apparently that scene was inspired by a moment in John Waters' own life from a very contentious Christmas he had with his family. Oh, no. Whether or not his mother ended up buried underneath a Christmas tree, uh, who knows? Who knows? But yeah, and this this film really starts a trend of John Waters' movies where it really delves into... The, not so much delves into that's more like polyester and hairspray, but like the American family mm-hmm. and just like the seedy underbelly of it, like just a, like that very well kept veneer mm-hmm. is hiding underneath like you know like sordid secrets and just like like a lot of ugliness. Yeah, like it's very much like a mid David Lynch like Blue Velvet Twin Peaks where it's like white picket fence. All smiles and happiness, but underneath there's this really fucked up darkness. However, it's with Waters, the veneer is ripped apart, but everyone's acting like the veneer is still there. So there's this weird, uncanny, uh, uncanniness on top of just the dialogue being campy, the acting being campy as well. So it, 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 it in some places it does get a little unnerving how how everyone's trying to. Like, act like this is normal, but everyone knows, what the fuck is this? This isn't normal. Because, like, there are definitely characters and situations where they themselves are unaware of how absurd and deranged it is. But Mm -hmm. they act like, oh, we're just normal. We're just going about our lives when there's, like, literally just, like, gross naked people doing stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And and there are are definitely some more moments in female trouble that like really skirt the line to being genuinely uncomfortable because like yeah like because i guess content warning now because part of when don runs away she hits hikes and catches a ride from a man named earl peterson which is played by divine uh in his masculine self and they have like sex on the side of the road it starts off kind of a little molesty and then they they get into it and then divine's I mean, Don steals his wallet while they're having sex on the side of the road. Yeah, it's it's fucking weird, and and then on top of that, the whole meta sense of Divine literally fucking himself. Yeah, too. It's like what? 
And eventually, Dawn is um, made pregnant by the man, and she tries to hold him accountable for the child, and he's just like, no, fuck you, I don't want nothing to do with you. So she has to stumble around this unwed teen mother in the the dretches of Baltimore, and she has her child, she gives birth in like some dingy couch in the alleyway somewhere. Yeah, and then she grows up to just be a fucking brat, because... The only thing, like, Divine knows how to parent is just to yell at her. And only really, quote, parents her when the, the girl gets on her nerves. Yeah, because she, she keeps a kid out of school. And just, like, the kid's just like a brat, just runs around screaming. Don won't do anything for the child. It's just like, why are you acting this, like, this way? Because you're a bitch, Mom. And, but it's her fault. Yeah. And I, we forgot to mention that in the birthing scene, <laughs> you see like an actual newborn baby and then divine actually chews through a real umbilical cord. Oh God. <laughs> so like never say divine didn't go uh, all the way for her art. Exactly. And so, so Taffy, her daughter is just this little brat and just constantly screaming, making noise. But Divine, I mean, excuse me, Dawn wants, like, this glamorous life of, like, of a rebel, of an outlaw. And she feels like just saddled down with Taffy. Which is where um, these these new characters come in, the Dashers. A elegant and refined couple that own a, uh, a beauty store. It's so acclaimed that people have to audition in order to get their hair cut there. Yeah, the the whole, like, rule set of how this works is really muddy and confusing and doesn't really make sense a lot of the time but so you know Dawn she auditions to have her hair cut there and uh, she ends up meeting and uh, I guess falling in love with the hairdresser Gator but the Dashers uh, they, they see Divine, uh, I mean Dawn as an opportunity because they want to open this art exhibit that's like showing the poor in their natural habitat, quote unquote, and like they have like this whole like infatuation, this like romanticization of like crime and villainy. So they see this potential with Dawn as like, oh, she's this like rabble rousing, like derelict. So we can make her like our idol and follow her around and use her. So they they start getting into her heads like, oh, you're just like a, a monstrous diabolical woman. We need you for our to make this wonderful art. So like Devon, so Devon just starts like getting more and more into like crime villains, like breaking windows, shoplifting and striding around town just being like as ghastly as possible. Yeah, definitely playing playing it up that playing that persona up that wouldn't be there if the Dashers hadn't pushed her to that point. And like cuz cuz like you see her you see like her winding around town being just a, a delinquent and like with real actual shot footage of people reacting to in real time to Divine and her and her get up just like stumbling around town looking bizarre and un, and unkept and just like because she because because Don wants to be like a star and so like she's really falling into the trap of just like oh, I'll become a star and I'll become infamous and that's how I'll get my fame. Yeah, as she's sort of falling in love with Gator, Gator's like trying to figure out his own feelings, but also trying to uh, appease his Aunt Ida, Who, played by the incomparable Edith Massey. Yes, and and like how a lot of heterosexual parents will treat their gay children in that, you know, it's like, oh, it's just a phase. Let me hook you up with this person to show you how 
gay you are not, you know. Uh, but she's the other way around where she thinks he's gay, but he's completely straight. And she's like, I got this man I want you to meet. <laughs> it was this is really funny role reversal. It is a great line from this movie is Ida says, The world of a heterosexual is a sick and boring life. And just to say nothing of what Aunt Ida looks like, because you have Edith Massey, a very um, plus-sized elderly woman, big, teased-up blonde hair, but she's in this, like, weird, like, sex BDSM bodysuit. Yeah, that that's probably, like, two sizes too small. And beforehand, we see her boobs, which still etched into my brain. And, yeah, she's in this basically bondage gear trying to talk gator into hooking up with a nice young man <laughs> yeah like just some gay man she dragged off the street uh, eventually uh don and gator to get together they move in together they fall in love and they just start ha- having like this these weird grotesque just like public displays of like awful affection yeah but then as as time goes on the they end up being Pulled apart because, you know, Gator's been, his aunt is putting so much pressure on him. And also, the only way he can get off is by looking at, like, magazines and stuff. So, while having sex with Dawn. Because, like, wasn't there one point where they're having sex in bed and, like, he's hitting her in the crotch with, like, a hammer or something? There's, like, a toolbox that he's working into their relationship. And, like, there's also another instance of, like, unflattering actual sex you just see like gators like dick and balls and his like weird gross hairy frame and then you have brat taffy now older but like she's a 14 year old girl but she's played by a grown-ass woman so it's another level of disconcerting <laughs> yeah because she's played by mink stole who played miss marble and pink flamingos and which which is another like another bit that's just so a uh, like obscene that you can't help but laugh because like gator tries to entice taffy to suck his dick it was just like awful in a way but then also you get this amazing line from taffy she says i wouldn't suck your dick if i was suffocating there was oxygen in your balls <laughs> fucking john waters is just the master of the insult and then of course Aunt ida finds out about their relationship and she reacts horribly he's like get away from him you hetero stink shit <laughs> and throws acid in don's face and like mutilates her and gives these horrible scars on her face. Yeah. And um, which leads to the Dashers like furthering like Don's mental decline into insanity. And saying like, oh, you're even you're even more monstrous before that that force, you're even more beautiful, even more amazing. So she wears her scars with pride. And then when they bring her back home from the hospital, they have the whole place, literally every stick of furniture in her room in her apartment, gift wrap. <laughs> yeah. And then they, then they, then they have one last gift. They open up a, uh, a corner, and there's a giant bird cave with Aunt Ida like chained inside with this feather dress. And they chop off her arm. <laughs> yeah. So at one point, she has like a fucking like hook hand <laughs> while she's in this bird cage. It, it kind of reaches this crescendo where like Dawn has been like whipped into this fever pitch of insanity and mania, and she's going to put on like the show of her life. She, she she rents out this this big auditorium where they where they go to like have this big night show for the yeah. the audience of Baltimore. Yeah, but before we get to that though, is Taffy's character arc where she 
joins the Har Harna Krishna people or how Hari Krishna's Hari Krishna's people, and you know, and she has like inner <laughs> a funny exchange with uh, what's her face, uh, aunt, aunt, uh, the aunt, and she's like, "Do you want you want some eggs?" and then, and then it just like a close up on Edith Massey. She's like, "I don't want no goddamn eggs." <laughs> So if you're following the John Waters lore at this point, it's like, ah! It's like he, he said the thing, which is funny because Edith Massey, she kind of went on like a a tour as the Egg Woman. Like she had like, she was literally in a band and she was like the singer and she they toured around after like the release of Pink Flamingos. Hell yeah. She became like her own little like little star within the, the, the galaxy of John Waters' universe. So like, Taffy has like this character reformation where she's no longer the brat that she was. And so she, uh, through the hard creatures, she's, you know, reformed herself. She sets an item free and I, I, and then she goes to try to confront her mother. It's like, you know, I change, uh, mother, you can, you can change as well. You don't have to be this monstrous criminal anymore. And, and Don just like so repulsed that, you know, someone can be doing good in her family. She chokes to death her daughter. She, she fucking kills her. <laughs> right before she goes on to do her little routine, her, her trampoline routine that that divine did all of his own stunts for. Hell yeah! Where he's jumping on a trampoline and he does a flip and he is in a baby carriage and he's like rubbing himself with a fish. <laughs> it is bizarre, and, and and it leads to probably my favorite moment of this film, where she pulls out a fucking gun. And points it at the crowd. And she's like, who's ready? Who wants to die for art? And then there's just one jackass in the crowd. like, me, me. And she, she fucking kills him. She just blows his ass away. And everybody runs in a panic. And then the police come. And they they arrest Dawn. And um, she's taken to court. Where the dashers realize, okay, we could get we could get hung for this. So they, they flip the script. And they turn on Dawn. And they said, oh, she, uh, she did all those crimes. She's the one that she killed her daughter. She... She threw acid on herself. She injected herself with beauty products. She did, she's depraved. She's a monster. We, we don't have want anything to do with her. She held us captive and all this. And Don's like, no, they did this to me. I'm beautiful. I'm amazing. And of course, like her history as a being a perpetual liar comes back to bite her in the ass. And no one believes her story. So then she's tried with capital murder. And so she's, uh, she's locked away in jail. She's saying goodbye to her, uh, her, her lesbian lover in jail. But before that's broken up, we probably one of the last great quotes of the of the movie. The lady guard comes in and breaks him up. It's like, "Hey, bumping pussies is against jail rules." <laughs> and then the movie ends with uh, Dawn being sent to the electric chair, and so she's uh she's executed as a state criminal, and that's where the movie ends, just rather abruptly in typical John Waters fashion. Yeah, and. It's definitely a, a more professional film than Pink Flamingos. Mm -hmm. uh, you can tell there was like actual like studio money behind it. I think it was produced by like fucking Warner Brothers. The, 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 from what my research said, um, the movie had a budget of twenty five thousand dollars, a noticeable increase from the first film. Yeah, and uh, apparently he was only twenty five years old when he wrote, produced, and shot the movie. Jesus Christ, God. Pat, we we need to get on our movie. Uh, hey, I mean, look at us. We've been doing a show for three years. Fuck, we can do it. And it's some other strange things, like um, like apparently the film is dedicated to uh, Charles uh, Tex Watson, aka a member of the Manson family. 
Yeah, and, and and one thing I read was that he that John Waters advocated one like the release of one of the Manson family or something like that. I know he visited uh, Tex in jail, and Tex gifted him a toy helicopter that he made that was actually in the film. Over the years, John Waters did regret yeah. that move because it just sort of having like a flippant, humorous like reference to the, the Manson family. Yeah. So that was. One yeah. of the things he realized that was in bad, bad taste. Yeah, that that that's where he he crossed the line too far. And and apparently, um, he was very surprised that the prison that final scene was shot in what allowed him to bring an execution uh, a um, excuse me electric chair into the to the facility because apparently a one of the few prisons in the area that didn't have executions and um, he kind of used that scene to demonstrate his um, anti capital punishment stance. Yeah. Whether or not that came across, that was why he had that moment. Yeah, I mean, I didn't take that from the movie, but knowing who John Waters is, I mean, makes sense. Just because because the reference is oblique doesn't mean it's not there. Exactly. Divine said she took a lot of cues from her performance in this movie from her own childhood, just being like a middle-class brat that always got what she wanted. Mm Mm-hmm. And a film critic named Rex Reed famously hated the film with a quote saying, where do these people come from? Where do they go when the sun goes down? Isn't there a law or something? And apparently John Waters loved that quote so much that he had it put on the Premier Theater. He had it put in local newspapers ads. And eventually it was even put on the back of the DVD case. Hell yes. And the, uh, the scene where... Taffy is playing car accident in the house. Oh my god, I've totally forgot about that. <laughs> which was a scene where, like, uh, Taffy has like a, a a toy car all made up. It was like she's squirting ketchup on herself, and she has like all this debris around. And it's like, and Divine comes in. It's like Taffy, I told you not to play car accident in the house. <laughs> Apparently, that scene was inspired by John Waters' own childhood, who he was quote obsessed with car accidents as a child, and had his mother take him out to junkyards to look at mangled cars. all right and one last note apparently he was promoting the film at a belgian film festival and an interpreter became so uncomfortable with his description of the film that she stopped translating what he was saying and started saying something completely different to the audience oh god (laughs) which he didn't find out until years later that she had flipped the script on him without him knowing yeah but yeah, this, this movie, I, 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 I was surprised how much I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It is still rough around the edges, uh, but it doesn't have necessarily the edge that Pink Flamingos does. But it's still really entertaining. Yeah. It, you know, there's still a lot of just... There's a lot of genuinely funny moments, because John Waters is a, is a great comedic writer. Yeah, and, and there's just a lot of really... Throughout all of his movies, just these understated bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, there's one in Hairspray where, like the <coughs> where the the show they dance on is like called Corny something. Corny Collins. Cor- Corny Collins, and it's almost like a dig at it itself. And uh, we'll we'll get more into like all that. But one thing I didn't notice, I don't know if you caught during just like an understated bit during while the kids are dancing you see one kid like just put his hands all over the girl he's dancing with ass just like a handful of ass <laughs> jesus so you have like these two big films in his early career that's like just full of just like weird like schlock and just depravity that really set the stage for his fame and like 
through that notoriety, he gained, he gained all this sort of like in, insight into the business and like that built his name and just sort of building his revenue. And through these sort of more hard to stomach films, it allowed him to, to secure a place to do more mainstream films, mm-hmm. which is where we get to with the next film, which is Paul Yester, released in 1991. Yeah. And this is about a the very beleaguered life of a housewife named Francine Fishpaw and she has to deal with just the constant nagging embarrassment of her very dysfunctional family her husband Elmer Fishpaw runs the local adult films cinema and and he's just a fucking son of a bitch just like actively degrades her takes her takes her for granted her daughter Lulu is just this wild hellion of a child she runs around town dancing and shacking up with the local bad boys she has her son Dexter which is a who apparently is a foot fetishist and goes around town stepping and stomping on the feet of the women in the, in the city he, he is the uh, serial foot stomper he's the stomper while it, it, it is his most mainstream film up to the point i feel like it's just it's just weird limbo film maybe not limbo but like this bridge it doesn't have the weird i guess like x-rated content of his earlier film but it's still debaucherous in its own way but it replaces that obscene content with just like genuinely absurd off the wall content yes even if it's not an explicit it's just still batshit crazy it is just so fucking bizarre, and this is the film in particular that really delves into the American family. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it really goes into like how shitty it treats women, too. Like you know, obviously in a more comedic and just like I, like we said before, bizarre way. But like this, just poor woman goes through all this shit, but she ends up coming out on top in the end. Yeah, because as absurd and over the top and like darkly comedic as this film is, uh, at least for me, like you, you have a genuine empathy for Francine Fishpaw in the film because like her family's just that awful and negligent to her. And when, when she gets nothing but her herself and she still just gets, or no, like even her own mother takes advantage of her and de- degrades her, literally stealing yeah. money out of her purse. And, and like her friend is. Su- her best friend is supportive, but just kind of becomes more and more absent-minded as it goes along. Because her friend, before the film starts, gets was a maid and gets inheritance uh, once that one of the families she used to work for died. So she she's becoming more and more like rich and sort of you know above it all. And, and her best friend is played by um, Edith Massey, Massey, and her character name is Cuddles Kavinsky. And she's the only person in the movie that treats Francine like a human. And she is genuinely, like, involved and sympathetic and caring for her friend. But, of course, just being the quirk of Edie Massey's character, she's completely left to center and just, like, not really present in the real world. But she still goes out of her way to help Francine in her own way. Like, because we watched this film last night, and me and me and Pat were talking afterwards, and God, th- this was the hardest we both laughed in a long time. Like, I legit belly laughed like three or four times throughout this film because there's just like some just amazingly absurd bits. So before we get to that, I did want to mention one of the big highlights of the film, just to illustrate how how bizarre it is is the odorama gimmick for the film. Oh yeah. Which is a smell-o-vision gimmick where the movie in the theaters came with a, a scratch and sips card with 10 
circles that you can scratch and whenever a number would flash on the screen you would scratch that corresponding circle and you would smell what either excuse me um francine is smelling this film because he has like this heightened sense of smell and that sort of it's a sort of a plot point throughout the film how like she noticed her husband's infidelity and all these weird things that happen because she has this acute sense of smell but it's not all roses as the first sniff was it has like these really gross scents like a skunk and like a fart and dirty shoes and it's all these other gross scents mixed in with like more palatable smells like of air freshener or something and this gimmick was actually inspired by william castle who was like a very well-known director who specialized in horror and with that came from like just like big wild gimmicks he would do and because john waters loved his film the tingler starting vincent price and he had like because william castle would have like flashing eyed skeleton like swing down in the middle of a movie theater for one of his movies they had like one movie he touted as being so scary that there was, there was like a checkpoint, like, you know, intermission. Hey, if you're too scared, you can leave. But in order for you to leave, you had to walk through this whole, like, rigmarole, like a yellow tape on the ground that led to a yellow box under a yellow light that said, and in order to leave, you had to walk through it and said, it's saying, like, I'm a certified coward. <laughs> like these big, wild, grand gimmicks. John Waters even did like that when he was making his own home films. Like he had his family members hide underneath his seats and like grab people by the ankles when he ever something wild and spooky was happening in his own home films. Like, like that's how like he really took from these o- older filmmakers, and that comes across with the Odorama gimmick, which is like this weird addition to the film. Yeah, and uh, you get the the uh, Criterion edition that that we have. Uh, it comes with the card, uh, and it and just. Before we we didn't we didn't do the scratch and sniff, just uh, like Criterion. Can you send us a, a replacement that we can have for our collection? Exactly. But um, without scratching and sniffing, like when you open the the fucking case, goddamn, it smells like old lady. <laughs> Straight up fucking old lady. And uh, one thing I loved about the Criterion collection is that the cover is very uh, evocative, like the like the eighties. Harlequin romance novel, like this, like strapping mm-hmm. man, like holding the woman in that nightgown. She's just like enraptured by his presence, and of course, it's Tab Hunter, you know, the teen heartthrob from the from the early days in the fifties, and you just see divine and the negligee. She's just like overcome with her emotions. Yes, and, and because because ultimately she ends up meeting Tab Hunter's character, and they they form a seemingly genuine relationship before it's revealed that he's just on a bunch of fucking coke and is actually fucking her mom. And because they're, they're trying to weasel Francine out of her money so they can get the house and all of her possessions because Francine is going through this like awful divorce because like. Eventually, her husband, Elmer, just says, the hell with this. I'm going to shack up with my secretary, played by Mate Stoll, who has inexplicably white people dreadlocks. I mean, uh, cornrows. Yes. Which is a look. It's a look. And they completely just, like, terrorize Francine in the movie. Like, they call her at night, and she's just... And they make, like, sex sounds. They drive around the neighborhood in the megaphone talking about how much she weighs, how weird and freaky she is. Yeah, and just, like, I think they even put, like, ads on TV, and they just do everything they can to humiliate her and ultimately drive her to alcoholism. And and it's one of those things where it's, for as as absurdly comedic as this movie is, it, it, at points, does get a little, like, tragic and kind of hard to watch in the sense of just seeing this poor woman spiral. And and it's not that she's she's getting this abuse from one angle, because, like, her own children are, like, 
being combative and destructive because like Lulu's like she's she's like I'm I'm like listen to you mom I'm gonna have sex with all these boys I'm gonna well in particular what what's his name Bobo Bobo which that's a fucking name and, and he he's just like this caricature of a fifties greaser just like this weird bony bastard of a teenager who, who's just a little fucking cunt and the introduction of him leads to one of my favorite bits in the movie. Where they they decide they they are going to pl- uh, play this game where they drive around the town, and and you know like you'll see in the old movies where they people would go around with a baseball bat hitting mailboxes. Well, instead they have a broom and they just go around hitting people on the ass with them. And as they drive down the street, they hit like a rabbi, they hit a Chinese lady, and then ultimately they hit the behind of just like this big gospel singer. Yeah, this, this big black church lady. And she's like, oh, hell no. And she hijacks a bus. <laughs> like, literally throws the bus driver out of the bus and chases Jesus the car down a, with the bus. Yeah, they. she ends up uh, cornering them. She gets off the bus and straight up bites a hole in their tire. <laughs> she bites a hole in their tire and deflates it. And, and then beats the living shit out of them. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> it comes out of nowhere and you just ever just screaming at what the fuck is happening. And, and then the next scene you see Bobo and his crew, they're all like bandaged up and everything. <laughs> and then Lulu is still damned and determined to like be with her her Bobo. She tries to sneak out with her of her room and she catches Bobo on at the on the on the sidewalk with his car is like let's get out of here Bobo my mom being a bitch <laughs> and then uh, Francine finds out what are you doing that boy get get, uh, get out of here she chases she uh, chases him to the road with a with a vacuum cleaner tube but and she gets to the car she really and it quickly just rips the door off the car <laughs> yeah, yeah just like just fucking yeets this car door off <laughs> it's like Francine has low key superpowers this whole movie super strength and super smell. Hell yeah. A good, like, C-tier X-Man. But Lulu's just being a noxious brat, just like, I got pregnant, I'm gonna have an abortion, there's nothing you can do about it, mother. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 like, the way Pat is portraying is, like, he's underselling how bratty this kid is. And, and one of the, uh, another just great bit of this movie is, I think it might be the first time Francine sends her to her room, because she's just being a fucking shit. She gets to the room, immediately opens the window, and has, like, a rope ladder ready to go. It's tied to her bed. She just flings out the window. And then Dexter is just, like, skulking around town, like, huffing, like, cleaning products and, like, stomping on women's toes and, like, looking at his, like, black Bible of just, like, cut out pictures of feet and women's shoes. And he's just, like, raising terror across town. Yeah, and... and and what's hilarious is they don't show him being the foot stomper before, but they introduce the concept early on. But it's like, oh, we see him looking at people's feet. He's the foot stomper. He he ultimately gets caught and gets sent to jail, but then gets let out. And I'm reformed, mama. And, and he's like clean cut and he's taken all of his weird eccentricities and put has put them into paintings of feet so like he has a foot fetish but he's redirected it in a very creative and positive let out yeah and his and his sister um lulu she's you know with, without 
she's wed. She's like an unwed mother. So she, so Francine calls the nunnery to pick up her daughter, who leads to another wild ass bit where literally like the siren goes off and like these two nuns in the car drive up on the curb, <laughs> drag Lulu out of the house and stuff her into the trunk of the car and drive off. And, and, and they like <laughs> fucking kidnap this poor girl and. and when it cuts to the church, it's like this, like, dingy... It's like r- a crack house, essentially. It, yeah, it looks like a fucking crack house. And, and they get there, and, and then immediately they just like, we're going to have a hayride. And it was like, a hay- yeah, instead of having a rosary tonight, we're going to let you get... We're going on a hayride, girls. But it's a hayride in the middle of the night in a thunderstorm. They're so just getting poured down rain and sitting on wet hay. It's just it's completely inexplicable. But goddamn, is it hilarious? And, and what's just fucking hilarious is if you've ever been to any sort of southern church function, at least one point in the year, you're going on a damn hayride. And you're going to enjoy it, by God. <laughs> which, which, okay, which is a bit of a tangent here. Even though this movie takes place in the north in Maryland, to me there's still there's quite a bit that I found just oddly familiar about the films and how like trashy the people look and sound. Because like coming from two people who lived their whole lives in Alabama, we know trash. Oh yes, we are connoisseurs of trash. Which it just seems like wow, this isn't very far removed from us, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean like Maryland, it's not that far from like say Virginia. So I mean. Y- there, there's a little bit of overlap there. Yeah, like the, the, possibly the, the northernmost threshold of the South, wherever that imaginary line ends. Yeah, whether it's the Mason-Dixon line or whatever. We'll say, fucking Ohio, y'all are worse than us. Get better. Fucking trashy inbred pieces of... God. I, actually, we, we don't hate you. But no. do get better, please. Well, we all strive to get better, won't we? And eventually, the daughter comes home. She's completely reformed too. So it's like, but it, you're you're almost waiting for the other shoe to drop because there's it's such a complete turn of face, and you're like, okay, she's gonna wake up from a dream and just be everybody's just full of bad energy again, all all over. Yeah, because that that was the because I was like, this that has to be the direction this movie's going. This must be the trajectory of the movie because the the guy she ends up falling in love with, Tab Hunter's character, he he's he's very much the inverse of her husband. He he's handsome, he's relatively young and charming. He's attentive of her and her needs. Attentive of her and her needs. I mean, he owns a very classy theater that's really like upscale, whereas her her husband owns like a dingy porno theater. <laughs> yeah. Which was one of the, another great bit because the first scene of the movie we we see uh, the town is picketing their house because you know they're like get the filth out of our town and he's like hey, hey, hey fuck you <laughs> I'm gonna show porn wherever I want because because he's using the uh, the people picketing his theater as like a weird form of like publicity to to, to ramp up people to go to his X-rated porno theater. Yeah, and, and so the it's on the news, and <laughs> the news tries to interview people who've, who frequent the porno theater 
just so you know, to see, is it as bad as they say? But as the men are coming out of the theater, like, they are just, like, ashamed and not looking they're at They're just, the like, hiding their faces and their boners as they're walking out of this, like, a, like burnt-out shell of a theater. Yeah, and you see a guy, like, zip up his pants as he's walking out. God, can you imagine just, like, old-school porno theater? I That just seems like the bottom of, of your life. Like, to think that you're just going to, like, just gross like dingy hole to like beat off god but the floors were really sticky yeah yeah i wouldn't want to work there to clean up that place no god fuck that yeah which you know times square as sanitized as it is now in the 70s was just porno theaters (laughs) now it had like disney on the big screen disney on the big screen so Don's falling in love with Todd tomorrow, Tab Hunter's character, and she's like this begins like this idyllic whirlwind romance. He he even proposes to her and she's just like, oh, Of course I'll marry you. You it's like you you're the man I've always been waiting for. My my family has rebuilt itself, you know, I have this wonderful life in front of me. How could I say no? Yeah. And, and, you know, you, like you said, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then it cuts to a scene when they go to a party at his theater. And he, he's in this room with all these people. And he just, there's just a fucking mountain of coat on the fucking table. And he's just... It's just a big snort of the nose candy. Yeah. And, and then that leads into the, the climax of the film where everybody sort of converges on the house at once. So, Tab Hunter, he's trying to escape, uh, but... So he can go downstairs and have sex with Francine's mother. Yeah, and then Francine's husband and the secretary are in the house. They're trying to kill Francine, you know, and the kids are just kind of fucking around. Because because the kids find out that their father's home and they're trying to kill her and they try to intervene. So they threw just some some wacky shenanigans. They ended up choking the secretary to death. Shooting the dad. And the the secretary shoots the father because she had the gun. By accident. And so Francine wakes up and is like, what, what, what's going on? And, and then uh, Todd reveals the scheme. He uh, takes the kids hostage. They have um, the, the, the grandmother's nurse who's just accompanying her and possibly having sex with her too. Scoop yeah. up the kids and, and the car. And then there's this, this big kerfuffle. And they, there's like, okay, we, we, it's efficiently broken Francine's mind. And we're going to stuff her off in a loony bin and sell all of her stuff. And we're going to... Right off into the sunset. And then she um, cuddles his character, comes driving up in the limousine. And then, like, Francine is, like, running away, trying to, she's, like, completely uh, out of her mind. And then, wouldn't you know, the the limousine hits and kills Todd's character and then backs up and kills the mother. (laughs) Yes. Like, completely accidentally. Yeah. And and then the movie just kind of wraps up this like, is kind of abruptly after that it's just like oh we're safe we're alive now we're a family again and then she inexplicably starts waving <laughs> air freshener in the air to get that last scent in like as a way of calming them down i guess and then uh, all this one big schmaltzy hug and then it just the end oh man i don't know like i think i might like this movie the best out of all of i i actually think so too because we talked about it before because it, it it's like it has this weird oscillating peaks and valleys thing where like the peaks in the movie are so high it's just so genuinely uproariously funny and then when it settles down it seems almost ordinary of a film but like for one it's the most technically proficient of all of the films so far yeah and i think it'd be easy uh more like technically dynamic than say hairspray 
Yeah, because um, this is his first use of Steadicam in any of his movies, and it's definitely more like tracking shots and like less static choices in the film. Yeah, different uses of lenses and weird duck shangles at certain points and things. And it's obviously like that. his most highest budget film to date, for sure. Oh, definitely. And you really see like where the money went. It's a it's a it's a well put together film. Yeah, like it, like just looking at the film, you know. Barring the rest of the content, I mean, it it wouldn't be out of place alongside anything else to come out in 1981. So, and I think I agree with you. It's it might be my favorite because this is definitely the easiest to watch. Definitely, I do have a soft spot for Pink Flamingos, yeah. just of how off the wall, butt fuck wild it is. But as a movie, I think Polyester is the better film. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's kind of hard to not appreciate the value of Pink Flamingos just from just like what it did to turn movies and the world upside down. Yeah, but I don't know like how revisitable the, the movie is in a lot of ways. You have to be in a mood to watch like Female Trouble or Pink Flamingos. Mm-hmm. Like I, I mean that that's not a casual watch. But I think Polyester is is a more approachable film. If you want like a safer entry into John Waters, it has some of his like weird schlockiness, but also it's it's much more like grounded. In yeah. The film this is probably your best bet, and if and if you're not, while it doesn't have the same level of explicit and like controversial material, there are a few things that kind of stick in there as a little uncomfortable. But otherwise, comparatively, yeah, it's it, a it's a much easier watch. Yeah, especially early Waters. I mean, I'm later Waters. Uh, there, there's probably a lot of more easier films to watch there mm-hmm. and just just wrapping up with um paul yester i did i did want to mention that um the vines said of his performance in this film he channeled elizabeth taylor one of his idols mm-hmm. and just sort of like the sort of the, the hard sorrowful things she went through in her life and career yeah and this was his first attempt as an actor to have a genuine emotional connection to get across to the audience. And I think he was successful in that. Yeah, because even as comedic and absurd as it is, like you said before, you do have this empathy for Francine because she's just going through all of this stuff. And even as absurd as it is, a lot of the stuff that happens to her could reasonably happen. Yeah, like how many... People, how many women have had, like, you know, they give their all for their families and they just don't receive any recognition or, like, even thanks for what they do. Yeah, and it's just one of those things where it's, like, expected of them. Yeah, and especially even from the 50s when, like, you had a stay-at-home mother and that's kind of, like, all they're able to do. And it was just sort of like they were a, a service or a furniture than the home on home and that's just like like well of course you know that, that as as natural as the sun rises or you know the wind blows that's what you expect of the mother yeah but and like i said before like as his films tend to peel the veil off of that idyllic 1950s american family i think this is the best that best film that does that mm-hmm. um and then i guess we move on to the final film the final film which is a uh, 1988's hairspray his uh, most successful mainstream film up to this point, because obviously his most approachable film. It is his only film that's rated PG. Uh, I believe. Polyester is, is an art. Others were like rated X or NC-17. So it's obviously a family film. One uh, film critic, Dan Edelson, said of the film, it's a it's a movie that both the Bradys and the Mansons can enjoy. <laughs> he said that, and that was his favorite uh, review of the film. And Hairspray 
is about the story of a young girl named Tracy, a high schooler who who loves to dance and loves her favorite show, the Corny Collins Show, which has local high schoolers uh, dancing on a weekly television show. And it's her sort of journey to be on that show and how her presence and her sensibility is sort of to shift the status quo of the town. Yes. And since this movie was... Uh, Set in 1962, it's just this cusp of, of a changing era. You have the, like the, the styles and the fashion and the sensibilities of the 50s still very much present and visible in the, in the setting. Yeah. And a lot of the film deals with uh, integration. Yeah, and, and big thing about race, which is done to varying levels of success. Because uh, Tracy, like she, she loves dance and she loves all types of dance, whether it be the... Well, like with the popular white dances from white, uh, the fashionable black dances, and so she has like this mixture of like all these different influences. And of course, you know, her outspokenness and just sort of just general like upbeat demeanor. So, like, well, why are things like that? I mean, you know, we're all just we all enjoy the same things. So, why can't well, it has to be this weird division? Yeah, and and, and then on top of that, one of the other character, her best friend, mentions like. It's almost played as a joke, but it's also like a relevant point. It's like, well, I mean, you know, do you not know Board versus the Brown of Education, which was well been passed by this point? But there were just because that law was put into effect doesn't mean that all the schools were and all everything was immediately integrated. It's it's a very slow and painful process for a lot of people to, for, for those changes to happen. But her favorite show, The Corny Collins Show, has a w- once-a-month special episode called Negro Day where, it's, where all the, the black teenagers and the black hosts have a d- day where they dance and they sing. Sort of like, th- that was like their one day of equal representation. Not yeah. really. And sort of, she's like really wants to be involved with the show, so she ends up like sneaking out against her mother, which is played by Divine. Mm-hmm. And she ends up going to like what's essentially a soft, casting scout for like uh for the show to find find new teenagers to dance and she ends up winning that that dance and she ends up having an audition and becoming the the hot new character on the show yeah and she becomes a part of what they call the the council which is like this weird like student council which is like the the most popular and and proficient student dancers and how they're the most like well like well seen on the show, so they have the most prominent place, and so they have to vet any new people who want to be on. Yeah, and so and just like her becoming like more involved with like the hair culture and the, the dance culture, and she ends up like running afoul of her her, her school board, where it's like, yo, you, uh, your hair is too big because all the girls in the show have these big beehive and bouffant hairs, mm-hmm. like all held up by hairspray and products. So she gets sent to detention. Or to a remedial class. Uh, uh, specifically the special education class. Which is where this report, they sent a lot of the black kids and anyone deemed ill-fitting or learning disability they sent. And one thing we will say about the film, there is some language in it that we probably w- it wouldn't fly today, but it's, it's a vernacular that um, was accepted at the time. Yeah. Essentially, like the the R word, you know, wasn't that that was the medical term. You know, we won't say it here, but you know what it is. Yeah, the R slur, and, and I mean, I, I don't even think the movie the movie goes out of its way to use the N slur in, in, in a, a 
derogatory fashion that that was just the word they used. So like heads up, yeah, it, for watching because that that will that will be something you see. I hear a couple of times in the film. Yeah, and, and it, it's a film about you know 1962 America. So there's just going to be some some uncomfortable things just in sort of replicating the time. Oh, there there's some uncomfortable things just like just like some really <laughs> un, 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 ungoods and just like bad writing. Yeah, especially at one point where just like I get what you're saying, but it's like, but that's really fucking dumb. Yeah, and uh, how it tackles race is a little too neat, in my opinion. Yeah, especially this is like a year before Do the Right Thing. Yeah, so it's like in a lot of ways the 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 racial commentary feels very safe, inoffensive that. It's not going. It doesn't feel like it really challenges white people mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and this is just my opinion. I mean, you could probably you probably feel differently. I don't know. I, I definitely agree with you. It is a very palatable version of like oh the systemic racism in America. And I feel like considering it's supposed to be a family film, I'm I'm not going to expect like some hard hitting uncomfortable lessons. Like oh yeah, it, it, there's enough there to make people realize or think about like the way things were and how we got here. Of course, you know, it being the eighties, there were a lot of really uncomfortable racial, like in, in, in civic, in problems. Sorry. I couldn't yeah. think I couldn't say in, I still can't say it. Insensitivity. That's it. Thank you. There's still, like a lot of political things and a lot of just like things happening in the world. So they have like this, I guess like a stepping stone to sort of like to think about sort of the racial relations in America. Yeah. And, and that's not to say like every, Every time it comments on race, it's bad. I think it does have some very poignant things to say, but yeah, it, it just seems like at the end of the day, especially the climax of the movie, it's like, well, it's integrated now. It's like, and and, and everything's hunky dory, and they lived happily ever after. And it's like that that's not how things worked. And, and there was like Baltimore did have a show like that, and when they did get integrated, they did get shut down. Well, because the show was the show, the Corny Collins. A program was based off the Buddy Dean show, was like a local teen dance show that was in Baltimore. And because they, well, from what I've read, they because they refused to integrate the show, eventually lost steam and fell out of oh, okay. popularity. Because Dick Clark had the American Dance Band, which is like the big nationwide like teen dance show, and his and he really fought for on screen integration. Mm-hmm. And because they had they had like. There's a big backlash. That show was eventually canceled, but like they were the first to really have like this integration of dances. Because it, it, when you think about it, it, it is kind of interesting how like in the early in like the fifties up to like the seventies, they had like fairly regular programming with like people doing popular dances of the day. Yeah, they had like what that, Soul just, Train in the seventies. Yeah, like I mean, we like like my my mom and my aunt said that they would watch that all the time. Yeah, you know, and they grew up in the late seventies, early eighties. So it, it is interesting how like they they have this big point about on the TV show that white people weren't allowed to be on but once a month but that in itself was sort of referencing how white people weren't allowed on certain spaces on TV but they were always on TV we like being like MCs or the singers and the band so like they're always present so it just shows like the hypocrisy like you're here but you can't be here yeah and, and it really shows with the dichotomy between uh, what's her name uh, the the black singer they use, Motormouth. Uh, Motormouth Maybell. Mo- Motormouth Maybell, where you first get introduced, and I mean, and she's bordering on a caricature, but we, we see her outside of that persona, and she's like 
fighting for, you know, civil rights. Because um, Hairspray does have a, a, a remake from the 2007 version that came out. And there there are certain things that having the concept of, uh, excuse me, having the context of watching the original and this and the remake, that there are certain things each one does, expands on and does a little better than the other. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting to see that flip-flop. Because in the, the remake, you really see this sense that like it, it is an act that she has to put on because in the movie she has like this rhyming dialogue like everything she says rhymes but in, in, the, in the remake they really show like it's on a cue card so she has like this exasperated look in her face whenever she has to say something corny that's that's yeah. said in a rhyme so there are certain things they really sort of emphasize to help you understand like oh she's just this just one that just happens to sing and rhyme all the time but of course that sort of goes shows like this weird place where she's a very prominent popular character within the program but she's not allowed to act like a person yeah and and it's like this this one narrow area of expertise of I guess of any sort of mobility is you have to go down this really narrow path so like in order for you to succeed you have to take this unfortunate path just for like any sort of visibility or place somebody has to cross that threshold yeah but as for the rest of the story uh tracy she uh she gets caught up in the, the sort of like big crazy schemes like the uh, the rich girl in town amber bond trussell who is surprisingly played by vitamin c vitamin c she right. sings the graduation song all the good time oh f- fuck me well in the uh and the Her, father's played by Sonny Bono. Uh, the father's played by Sonny Bono, and the mom's played by Debbie Her- Harry, who is in Videodrome and is the lead singer of Blondie. So, like, you have all these, like, of course, Vitamin C wasn't a name then, but, like, you have, yeah. like, these, like, names, like, in this movie. So, like, it, that just sort of adds to its mainstream presence. Yeah, and then uh, Tammy's mo- uh, dad is... Ben Stiller's dad, Jerry Stiller, and it is just like it is weirdly star-studded. I wasn't really expecting, but it was a very pleasant surprise. And John Water has himself is makes a cameo as like the psychiatrist, like hypnotist that tries to get Penny Tracy's best friend to stop dating a black boy. Yeah, and, and one of the thing, one of the ways it, it satirizes racism really well is through Penny's mom, who is just this super fearful, anxiety-driven woman who's just constantly worried about her daughter dating a black guy. And so it's like whenever Tracy and her friends, um, they they follow seaweed, a uh, a young black boy who's the son of Motorbelt Maymel to uh, was essentially this the black part of town where they're all kind of sequestered. They go to Motorbell's record shop. They all start dancing and learning what is essentially the black dances where like, you know, only the, the only they did are for a white person. They would seem scandalous. Yeah. So they're, they're being like, they're sharing each other's like dances and they're just like having a good time enjoying each company. And then like mom kicks down the door. It's like, I'll save you penny waving a butter knife around. Yeah. Just and, hysterical. And, and then like uh, one of my favorite scenes of the movie is where she's fretfully trying to find this, the record store where they're at. But you know, she's, she's just in the, the black part of town and the black people are just trolling the fuck out of her. The it's entire like, look, time. Look at this dumb, scared white lady. And they're just like making a scene at, of her making a scene of herself. Yeah, and she's just like, ah! So there's this, this big drama that they're able to, like, save the day at the end because, like, Tracy gets caught up in this big demonstration that kind of, like, inadvertently ruins the whole, like, dance sequence because she was going to win, like, their, their big dance party at the amusement park. 
but then there's like some shitheads at, at uh like racist shitheads who's like disrupt a present like a uh, oh, god damn it what's the word oh like the protest protest yeah because because there's this one little racist lady throws a firecracker uh in the middle of the crowd to inside a race riot and uh penny tries excuse me uh Tracy tried to sneak seaweed in. He gets beat up by the cops, and then Tracy ends up being carted away by the cops for, like, you know, being the instigator and, like, speaking out against the racism. So the rich bitch, uh, Amber, she gets crowned the queen at the dance, and then through the course of, like, the, the story, like, Tracy comes in contact with these people that show, like, the world isn't, isn't it's, like, quote, black and white, and there's, like, how to, to break down these, these strict rules, so she, like, learns how to let her hair down, figuratively and literally yeah by ironing it of course penny when she's grounded she literally takes like a clothing iron to her hair to straighten it out which is like it was a bit if you don't pay attention you could miss yeah and um and then it all comes together at the end uh she gets pardoned and then gets renamed uh the queen of the auto show or whatever the fuck it was called and, and Penny's or not Penny the the rich bitch's parents the Von Trussells the Von Trussells they they have this weird elaborate scheme where they have this like wily e. coyote style bomb that they, they're going to use so like if if Tracy shows up or like any sort of like discord happens they would set off a bomb that would uh distract that they can get out but they hide like this Looney Tunes bomb inside this giant wig hairpiece that uh, Amber's mother has. Yeah, and then it ultimately, once everything, you know, kind of comes ahead, it, like, explodes in her hair. And then, like, the Von Trussells are carted away and made to look fools, and Tracy is sort of, like, given her spot as a prominence at the dance. And just, like, having that comparison between the movie and the remake, there's a a lot I enjoy from both, because I feel like the, the original... A big part of it is sort of the race relations and sort of calling that out, and that's of course in the remake, but it's but it's it's handled much better in the remake. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the whole bit where Tracy learns about letting her hair down that at least has some context in the in the original because like in the in, in, in at the end of the remake, she her hair is just down, mm-hmm. but there's there's not really like her. Figuring out, oh, let your hair down. You know, this the hairspray keeps it up. It's just a conservative thing. Like she doesn't have that kind of figuring out moment. When it's just mm-hmm. kind of there. Yeah. And we, and one thing I will say because it had the movie first, and the movie isn't the original is not really a musical. It's like a dance movie with some musical elements in it. And they had the Broadway play, and then the remake is essentially like combining the two, where it's like a mm-hmm. musical movie. Yeah, it, it, from what I understand, it's more of an adaptation of the stage show. Because there's actually like actual songs and like big production numbers. Because the movie is like focused so much on the dance, there are some moments where it feels you, you kind of feel the length of the movie. Yeah, this one, this one was definitely my least favorite, and, and and not so not even like like I said how it kind of clumsily handles race, but like the dance numbers really go on to the point to where it's like, okay, come on, let's get going. And the thing is, is the movie's only 90 minutes, but God, it feels like damn near two and a half hours. Because, because when we say they're dancing, it's not like this, like a big choreographed number. It's just like, they're doing popular dance of the day and they're having that, this 
stretch of time in a movie to to showcase that. Yeah, and then on top of that, just sort of a personal preference for me, the whole that whole like late fifties, early sixties sort of like teen dance aesthetic, I'm just not a huge fan of. Yeah, like I it as as the name of the show implies, I think it's just kind of lame and corny and just I don't know, just does, it does it didn't draw me in. And we'll say like John Waters is a big fan of like fifties culture and fashion and kitsch, and that's why. You see that as recurring visual elements in like a lot of his films, especially the early parts, because that's just that's an area of time he grew up with, and that's that's a, an aesthetic that he he's really enamored with. So you see that really put, and then hairspray is probably the ultimate expression of that. Yeah, and, and whereas like Female Trouble and Polyester play it more as a parody or satire sort of thing. Or like it's, it's something it's something that's a part of the film but not the focus. It's a part of the film, not the focus, and it's sort of poking fun at it. This is more just straightforward. Yeah. Uh, just recreating that aesthetic. All around it, I mean, it's a pretty good movie and recommend you at least check it out. Yeah, because it's definitely like, um, if you're working backwards, this would be the most approachable and like most easily watched with like people who have delicate sensibilities when it comes to like, you know, content. Yeah, this is definitely more of family friendly oriented. I mean, there's still some like weird John Waters shit in here, but it's not like, like when Amber's mother pops a zit in her chin. Yeah, it's like what the fuck is this? But it's nothing like super objectionable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's it's okay. Handles race a little weird, but you know, it is a movie that came out in the eighties. As much as we love John Waters, John Waters is a white guy of his time. You know, he's not going to be like super fucking woke. You know, especially. W- and, and the thing is, is it's as much as I'm criticizing it. I mean, it's well well intentioned for the most part. It, it's never meant. Uh, you know, it's meant to sort of you know critique that era of American that dark. Era of American history, and it's just sort of like I feel like it plays it a little too safe in a lot of areas. I mean, I, I guess it plays in the sense that this may be people's like first time confronting it in a lot of ways, and you're not you're not probably not going to be hit with the hard stuff out of the gate. So yeah, it, and, and I mean, and as much as I say that, there are some aspects of it that do hit on it a little more more than say like something like Green Book or Driving Miss Daisy. Where those movies are meant to not shatter white fragility. But yeah, the, the, this is definitely a little more palatable, which probably coming from another director, it probably wouldn't, I wouldn't be as annoyed by, but as someone as boundary pushing and, and transgressive as John, John Waters is, it feels uncharacteristically safe. Yeah. I think we, this is a nice um, overview of Donald Waters' work. It's, it's four of his most famous films. You have like the the schlock in circumstance of the early portion, and you have the the um, the nuance and, and rein in the absurdity of later John Waters. And I think this is a great sort of spectrum for his early work because he has plenty more works to cover into the 90s and 2000s that are just equally as wild and bizarre and we might cover at a later date who knows so it's definitely um we have you have a nice sample of john waters and we hope you enjoyed us going through these films today we hope you uh visit these films in your own watching and before we go just quick how would where would you rank these films as for together i would say my ranking would be paul yester number one Number one, female trouble, 
Pink flamingos and hairspray. Uh, for me, it would be polyester, pink flamingos, female trouble, and hairspray. So, so. we're of 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 sort of same accord in our thinking. We we gave us about the same scores for each film. Mm-hmm. So like these are all very solid uh, films. If if you have the the certain cinematic sensibilities that we do, yeah, and and like even though like I don't think I would consider any individual movie of his like anywhere are my favorites like i don't even think any of these would break my top 10 he's still just one of my favorite directors and just like creators in general and just a fascinating figure so well, we thank you for joining us today we really appreciate you uh giving your time to to, uh, to go over the show with us and listen to a, a new type of cinema something they may not be have exposed to and something that we sort of were learning about ourselves that we were going through so we appreciate you joining us this week and uh, you can follow us on SoundCloud iTunes Google Play Google Podcasts Overcast Spotify and any RSS feed catchers out there please be sure to like rate you can describe on all those platforms that helps us out spread the shows around puts in front of new people and just keeps the show alive and you follow us on uh, social media at Instagram and Twitter at AYCH Podcast and follow us on Letterboxd and Facebook at All You Can Hear and follow us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash all you can hear and all our VODs from Twitch go on to, on YouTube at All You Can Hear. And you can also call us at our brand new AYCH hotline, and that's 205-523-4965. 205-523-4965. That's LAD4965. And you can follow me, Patrick, on Instagram and Twitter at John Lawson's name. Follow my art on Facebook at John Lawson's name art. And my name is Jonathan. You can follow me on Twitter at J-O-N-I-I-B-O-I-24 and Letterbox at JohnNoneSun12. Next week, we'll have Colton Wenzel back in the driver's seat. and They'll be talking about uh, something interesting and crude, bizarre. We don't know. It'll be a surprise to you and to us as well. So take care. We'll be talking to you soon. Have a great week. Goodbye, you heterostink shits. <laughs>